Great Patient One Chapter 21 Read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott Our two pilgrims have set out from Varanasi to walk to nearby Sarnath, the site of the mango grove, frequented by ascetics, where the Buddha gave his first discourse, initiating the turning of the wheel of Dhamma. Chapter 21 The Universal Duty Achen Suchito We were coming back into Buddha land, Saranat. The great teacher had walked this way himself from Varanasi to give his core teachings to his five former colleagues teachings that had illuminated the world since then. At Sarnath, we could pay homage to the Buddha again. Apparently, the funny octagonal tower that we passed on the outskirts of the modern town sits on top of an ancient stupa that commemorates where that group of five had first caught sight of him. Though he'd sought them out for their welfare, they hadn't wanted to receive him. They'd revered him as their leader when he'd been the supreme ascetic, but he'd then disillusioned them by giving up the struggle and reverting to the luxury of eating every day. What if we don't greet him, they thought, when they saw him returning after his awakening at Bodhagaya. But as he drew near, his majestic bearing, his ease and his radiance got them to their feet despite themselves. One took his outer robe and his bowl, one prepared a seat, one set up water for washing his feet, a footstool and a towel. Give ear, bhikkhus, said the Buddha, the deathless is found. I shall instruct you, I shall teach you the Dhamma. They still tried to resist, but who could hold out against an awakened one? By practising as you are instructed, you will, by realising it yourselves, here and now, through direct insight knowledge, enter upon and abide in that supreme goal of the holy life, for the sake of which men of good family rightly go forth from home to homelessness. After passing the tower, the road took us past the wall over which peered a naga-crested roof. The Thai lettering emblazoned on the wall confirmed that this was Wat Thai Sarana. We stood still for a groggy moment in the warm sunshine. Just to have the space to do that, after the hurly-burly of Varanasi, felt like we had entered a sanctuary already. Then a smiling Thai bhikkhu appeared and after making Anjali quietly took my bag off my shoulder and led us into the lodgings of the Wat, a clean, modern, two-storey accommodation block arranged around a courtyard with a dining hall outside. We were introduced to a small, rotund, an elderly bhikkhu who spat at a vigorous, rasping welcome as his quick eyes took us in. The abbot, Venerable Sasnarasmi, was obviously a man of action, and strangely enough for a Thai Wat, Indian, 
but now wasn't the time for explanations. I've been expecting you, he said, leading us into his room, where he burrowed around in a desk and dragged out the letter that I'd sent from Bodegaya. You know where Verbal Nimbolo is? He left his passport and ticket here. German. His voice sounded like shears going through aluminium sheeting, probably due to cigarettes, one of which was stubbed out in the ashtray. Talk later. You must bathe, take some food, and have a rest. I grew fond of him over the five days that we spent in Sarnat. He had the kind of sincerity and vigour that I had seen in Venerable Dharmapal, who we met in Calcutta. In fact, they were associates, together forming the leadership of the All-Indian Bhikkhu Sangha. Attempting to organise and administer such an amorphous outfit must have taken unimaginable resources of fortitude and patience. But the abbot, though now in his seventies, was still richly endowed with those. He hailed from a low-caste background in Maharashtra state, had run away from home at the age of eight, became a sadhu at eighteen, then set up, and subsequently abandoned his own business in his early twenties. Then, when the World Fellowship of Buddhists decided to have a symposium in Colombo in 1950, he had been approached to represent India. So I agreed to take bhikkhu ordination and go to the conference. But I liked it. So I stayed in Sri Lanka for years, wandering, living on the beaches, always moving on. As with Venerable Dharmapal, it wasn't always easy to get a solid biography or even a long conversation. The nature of the man meant that even if he said, all I can do now is smoke and talk, he was much in demand, with his monks stopping into his office to get some information, or a telephone ringing, or an appointment somewhere. We never did find out how he, an Indian, had managed to get so much support from Thailand to build the most commodious and well-appointed monastery in Sarnat, let alone acquire the Thai ecclesiastical title Prakru. Srivijaya. However, we did hear one day, as he was sitting in a chair in the courtyard, a praise of his early days at Sarnat, punctuated with stabs from a stubby finger. When I arrived, there was nothing here. This field was a latrine for the village. I hung my robe over a bamboo pole for a shelter and decided to stay. I had nothing. Then as I got support, the priest from the Hanuman temple tried to take over, tried to get me thrown off said it belonged to the temple. I had to fight for years. He was used to fighting, this rubber bullet of a man with the rusty bayonet voice. The mealtimes were conducted around his charming, humorous, but penetrating thrusts of visiting monks. I know we should eat in silence, in the proper way, he confessed to me, but it's my one chance to attack their worldly habits. As a well-to-do Thai Wat, the monastery naturally was a stop-off point for Thai tour buses and free-wheeling bhikkhus who were often a jaunt to see the sights. We would gather in the small monk's dining hall sometime after eleven in the morning. Nick was invited in as my eight-precept companion. He would be at the back, while the bhikkhus all sat around a table, some with arms bowls, some using plates, with the food in the middle of the table waiting. The abbot would always be late, and come striding in muttering high-speed apologies at about twenty past. The apologies would turn into some remarks in an Indian dialect to the Indian bhikkhus there, 
then, as he waved us to serve ourselves the food, into conversational remarks in Thai. Then the formal mealtime reflection on the use of food. He didn't eat much himself, but sporadically engaged one of the visiting Thai bhikkhus with a few questions. I couldn't understand the Thai, but noticed the slightly defensive smiles and the occasional chuckles from other parts of the table. It was all quite civilised, yet enough to keep people on their toes. But for me, the first day was anything but sharp. I felt weak and undefined. That being nothing new, however, I tottered along behind Nick to the deer park with its ruins in the afternoon. That is, until the gated entrance to the park, where a familiar goddess arose in me with unmistakable command to head for the nearest toilet, which was beside the gate. Shakily emerging from that, I was confronted by an attendant demanding one rupee for the use of the convenience. No money! Nahi paisahe! I pondered momentarily whether this was tantamount to stealing, an expulsion offence. However, I could hardly give anything back, so, mentally determined to ask Nick to deal with the matter, I made it past the protesting attendant and collapsed back into the what. The rest of the afternoon, the evening, and the greater part of the night were spent going through a rerun of the Calcutta Purge with renewed vigour. So it wasn't until the next morning, February 10th it was, that I made my way shakily to the park where over 2,500 years ago the Buddha had set the Dhamma wheel turning by teaching the Four Noble Truths to his five fellow summoners. Within the park, apart from the cleanliness and serenity, the single most prominent feature was a stupa. It sat like a king on a throne, thirty to forty metres high, feet spread over the earth, weathered and abused by history, but very solid, seemingly more definite more stable even than the earth beneath its feet or the sky around its head. I stood for a while, gazing at it, then circumambulated it in homage. This stupa, the Damek stupa, was the most substantial of all the remains in the deer park. From the Ashokan age through the Gupta period, there had been steady development of religious building, on the site where the Buddha instructed his five companions, another stupa, the Dhammarajika stupa, had been built and an Ashokan column erected next to it. After that, a temple had been constructed on the site of the small hut that the disciples built for the master as his residence during that first rains retreat in Buddhist history. Those structures were all close together, about a hundred metres to the west of the Dhammek stupa, but in nothing like the same condition. Xuanzang reported on the temple, known as Mulagandakuti, as containing a life-size copper image of the Buddha when he came through. Obviously that had gone a long time ago. Now the temple was just a space, surrounded by a few low walls, and the column was just the stump. The Stupa to the king of the law, originally similar in size to the Dhammek, 
was a mere platform with a circle of foundation bricks on it. The Muslim raiders of the 11th and 12th centuries had destroyed the temple and shattered the column. As for the remainder, when the Sangha had disappeared, it seemed that the temples and monasteries on the site had been deliberately incinerated at some time. The ruins were up for grabs, and hunks of stone were used in building projects in Varanasi. It was only the discovery of the Buddha's relics when the Dhammarajika stupa was demolished in 1794 that halted the process by drawing British attention to Sarnat. Under the auspices of Sir Alexander Cunningham, investigation of the site proceeded in the first half of the 19th century, and though cartloads of unearthed statues still got hauled off for building works, much of what remained was preserved. That included the magnificent lion capital that had been on the top of the Ashokan column and later became the emblem of the independent state of India. We saw it in the museum near the Watt. Less regal, but more to the point, was another piece we saw there, a fragment of a stone parasol near the temple, on which was still visible a section of the Buddha's first discourse, the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta. There are, because two extremes that should not be followed by one who has gone forth. Devotion to pursuing sense-pleasure, which is low, vulgar, worldly, ignoble, and produces no useful result. And devotion to self-denial, which is painful, ignoble, and produces no useful result. Avoiding both these extremes, because the middle way that the targeter has awakened to gives vision and insight knowledge and leads to peace, profound understanding, full realization, and nibbana. Out of that first discourse, the Sangha was born. And here at least it felt like it was genuinely alive. The monastery seemed to be attuned to the dharma of summoner life. The gesture of receiving me had been the first sign, but the quiet deportment of the resident monks, two Indians and two Thais, and their diligent attendance to pujas and study, gave me a feeling of being on solid ground. I asked about going out on arms round. Yes, at least one of them did that every day. And they'd be happy for me to go along. And would there be a Patimoka recitation on the new moon, the 14th? Yes, that was their custom. And when they found out that I knew it, they seemed delighted at the possibility that I would chant it for them. So the days fell into a simple pattern. Before dawn, Nick and I would climb over the locked gates into the tier park and meditate there until the sun came up. Then I'd walk around the park taking in the scene, then return to the Wat to practice chanting the Patimoka for an hour or so. After that, I'd take my bowl and go out for arms in the neighbourhood with Venerable Damasilo, one of the Indian bhikkhus. The locals were quite devoted to the monastery. After the meal... 
I do some walking meditation, have a rest, and spend the rest of the day practicing the party mulka, meditating, and completing the sewing jobs on my bag. It all felt so normal, like coming out of a weird dream. Why weren't the other holy places like this? As I felt stronger and some interest in life began to return, the expeditions in the deer park lengthened. The northern boundary was a fenced-off area containing deer, and between that and the centre of the park were the ruins of a large monastery built in the last days of Buddhism, when it was little more than an object of a few wealthy patrons' devotion. In that long twilight, when the Ganges plain was being ravaged by Turkic raiders, the wife of the king of Kanoj, who was styled as an incarnation of Vishnu, had this place built. It couldn't have lasted long. The Islamic raiders were soon followed by the first Islamic state, the Delhi Sultanate, which dominated the Ganges Valley in the 13th and 14th centuries. Further east and past the Damek Stupa, the park extended to more recent constructions, notably the Mulaganda Kuti Vihara, constructed under the auspices of the Mahabodhi Society in 1931 for the use of pilgrims. The Vihara pays tribute to the Buddha, of course. There are Buddha relics enshrined there, and the entire interior is covered with murals depicting scenes from the Master's life but it is also a tribute to one of the people who brought Buddhism into public awareness at the beginning of the 20th century. It owes its presence and its international backing to the almost indefatigable efforts of Anagarika Dharmapala, who spent most of his adult life struggling to have the Buddhist holy places of India returned to Buddhist hands. A Sri Lankan in the colonial era, Dharmapala had initially received support from the American Colonel Henry Olcott and the Russian Madame Blavatsky and represented Buddhism at the International Parliament of Religions in Chicago in 1893. His numerous articles and crusading style matched his deliberately chosen name of Protector of the Dhamma. Outside the Mula Gandhi Kutivihara, where his ashes are interred, his statue stands, arms folded, still collected in earnest thought. Although mindsets around the Buddha's Dharma range between the evangelical, the mystical and the psychological, the principal teaching of the Four Noble Truths is universal. There is suffering, dukkha. Particularly when dukkha is understood as unsatisfactoriness, this is something that everyone can relate to. Varying from wishing there were more of the nice bits or that other people could have a better deal, to downright misery, there is an unsatisfactory taste to experience. We think that something has gone wrong, rather than recognising that there is a cause we can address. The origin of dukkha is to be abandoned. We could let go of the wanting that engenders dissatisfaction. The stopping of dukkha can be realised. There can be a wishless immediacy that opens us out of holding on, and there is a path to that stopping, the middle way. I knew the teachings, but someone who could exemplify them is a blessing on that path, and to find one of those seemed to take a lot of travelling.
Nick Scott. It was the new moon the last day we were at Sarnath, and as Ajahn Suchito was at a monastery, he shaved his head. On the pilgrimage, he'd been doing this once every month, usually on the day before the full moon. He did it himself using a Chinese safety razor I'd bought him in Bulgaria, soaping his head and then scraping off lather and bits of black hair in long swathes. Despite a lack of mirrors, he never cut himself. I suppose that was because he'd been doing it for so long. In the monasteries in England, as in Thailand, they do it diligently twice a month, often shaving each other. But on the pilgrimage, it was hard for him to get the hot water to do it that often. I never dared offer to help. The other monks in the Vihara also appeared with newly shiny heads, and in the afternoon they all met to recite the Patimoka. I was pleased that Sanchitito had finally found a monastic community whose Vinaya he could respect. The sloppy attitude of other bhikkhus we'd met in India had caused him such heartache. And the respect was mutual. These monks were impressed with him too. The young Indian bhikkhu who went on arms round with him palpably so. On the second day, Ajahn Suchito gave him the stainless steel arms bowl he'd been given in Budgaya, swapping it for the young monk's much smaller and battered iron one. I could see from the way the young monk handled his new bowl how pleased he was. Although it made sense for Ajahn Suchito to have a lighter and less attractive arms bowl, I'm certain he really did it as a confirmation of what they were doing at the wall. While they were meeting for the Patimoka, I was in the deer park. There I spotted Reverend Cuthbert, a Zen monk from Shastarabi in California, who we'd met on Christopher Titmus's retreat in Budgaya. I couldn't really miss him, even amidst all the Tibetans around the stupa, for as well as his newly bald pink head bobbing above the sea of black-haired Tibetan heads, there was also the robes. He had on his full regalia a mauve cassock, the colour meant he was a roshi or teacher, with a saffron kesa around his neck, a kind of pinafore that is a vestigial bhikkhu's robe, shrunk to a square foot but still made up of small pieces of cloth in the same basic pattern. When I went over to greet him, I found he'd just arrived and was staying at the Mahabodhi Society's Vihara. We chatted and exchanged news of our two traditions of a branch of his monastery I knew in Northumberland, and an offshoot of our tradition being planted in California. We marvelled at how international Buddhism now was. While the founder of his American monastery was an Englishwoman who trained in a Soto Zen monastery in Japan, our English forest tradition was established by an American who trained in Thailand. Both traditions now attracted people from everywhere. In England, They'd recently come from Russia, Israel, Zimbabwe and El Salvador. Buddhism has circled the planet. There was this same sense of internationalism with the Buddhist monks at the holy places. For me, used to just one tradition, there was such a bewildering variety, from Tibetan monks with their maroon and yellow tops and wide maroon skirts, through Korean Zen monks in grey floppy pyjama-like robes, to Chinese monks from Malaysia or Taiwan in dark robes with brightly coloured wraps over one shoulder. Even Theravada monks 
who supposedly all wore the same saffron robes, varied. The Sri Lankan monks wore their robes, which were nearly yellow, with a casual over-the-shoulder style that fitted their tropical homeland. The Burmese monks' robes were dark reddish-brown, and the Thai monks had a variety of colours. City monks wore shiny polyester saffron-coloured robes, but the forest monks had cotton ones, the dull ochre of the traditional jackfruit dye. Finally, to finish off this mix, there were the various tall and pink-skinned western monks, such as my companion, in the robes of their adopted tradition. And then, of course, there were the eyebrows. As I spoke to Reverend Cuthbert, I kept noticing his eyebrows. Monks from the Thai tradition shave them, so I'm always surprised when I see eyebrows on monastics from elsewhere. With a newly shaven head, they can look like small furry creatures. But it is the Thais who are the exception in this, and it only dates from the 18th century. The king of Thailand, at war with Burma, ordered them to shave their eyebrows as a way of spotting Burmese soldiers disguising themselves as monks. However, I suspect that it also suits the Thai style in which a clinical neatness of form matters so much. The other Westerner we met at Sarnath was Heli Chowcroft, a Danish supporter of the forest tradition. She turned up late one morning at what Thai very inspired at having stumbled upon Ajahn Suchito. She'd escaped from an organised Indian tour to flee for the day from Varanasi, which she disliked as much as we had. After the meal, we visited the museum and the Tibetan temple with her and went for a walk together down a side road to the local village. We'd been told there was to be a Shiva festival there, and on the way we passed groups of locals dressed in their best clothes, mostly women in brightly coloured saris with red spots of pigment on their foreheads. They were both coming and going from the village up ahead, and the nearer we got, the more crowded it became. At the village, the people were condensed to a solid mass around the temple, which was perched atop a raised platform some dozen steps high and sheltered by an enormous bodhi tree. The steps were filled with people trying to make their way up or down. Ajahn Suchito and Heli stopped before the crowd got too dense, but I went on to peer between the stone pillars of the balustrade at the locals making their offerings. The priest officiating was a man, but all those taking a turn to squeeze in front of the shrine were women. On the way back I pondered on whether the festival was actually for women, perhaps something to do with fertility, or if it was just that there usually are a lot more women at religious events. One Western sociologist I read put that down to Asian women having few other opportunities to get out of the house and have a good chat. But it seemed to me that women's attraction to religious devotion is about more than socialising or even duty. We see the same phenomenon in the West, with the new Eastern religions. Women seem to have more affinity for devotion than men, and perhaps there is also something about the relationship to authority. Like Helle, who seemed pretty grounded, but was more inspired and reverential with monks than Steve, an American who was staying at the Watt with the Thai tour party. 
Despite being very interested in the teaching, he was matter-of-fact in the way he related to the monks. But Heli wanted to take the precepts and refugees from Ajahn Suchita. They did it in the deer park, which made a delightful scene. The two of them sitting facing one another on the lawn, each with their hands held in Anjali, as he chanted the formula and she repeated it after him, while I took photographs with her camera. And lastly, there was the abbot, Venerable Sasanarasmi. I spent several hours in his room while at Sarnath, as he told me stories of his time in Sri Lanka and Thailand, and the early days of setting up his monastery, all while filling the room with cigarette smoke. He liked to make out that he wasn't up to much anymore, but that wasn't the case. His room was strategically placed near the entrance so that everyone coming or going had to pass it. The door was always open and he would call you in as you went by. During one visit, he told me that the new Buddhist monasteries in England were a very good thing. He had noted the standard of the Western monks he'd met and that I should do all I could to support them. He compared what was happening in England with the standard of most of the monks in India. He suggested to Ajahn Suchito that they should send some bhikkhus from England to train the Indian Sangha in meditation, and that they would be welcome to use his monastery. I even got called into his room during our new moon vigil on our last night, when I went to get some tea at midnight. He was not long back from Kushinagar, where he had been taking photographs of the Indian monks begging for money around the stupa. He was going to use the photos to get the monks disrobed. Achan Suchito the courtyard, where I sat sewing with a borrowed pedal-driven machine, was a good place to observe the monastery's activities. We were not the only visitors to the Wat. The Thai bhikkhus I had met at Nalandar were stopping over for a few days after a round-India sightseeing tour. Their friendliness and respect for me as a senior bhikkhu was immediate. They came round to my room with bottles of medicines, bundles of robes and woolen hats, I accepted a couple of robes from them that were slightly larger and tougher than the skimpy city monk robes I had been using since Nalandar. One evening a Thai tour group arrived. It was cheering to hear Thai voices again, chirruping away in good humour as they settled in, and an hour or so later lilting through the traditional devotions to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. The newcomers were from Los Angeles, with Thai bhikkhus on board, and one American layman, Steve, awkward and outsized amongst the petite and graceful Thais. I got round to talking to him, and tried to give him some familiar company and put Thai religious mannerisms into a perspective that he could relate to. Helping him helped us. By the next day, he'd arranged for Nick and myself to get a ride on their bus as far north as the outskirts of Gorakhpur. This would give us a big boost in our aim of reaching Savati early and also line us up to visit Lucknow, where Punjaji was. We might also visit Ayodhya, the centre of the troubles that we've been hearing about over the past four months. 
Somehow, it seemed right to go into it and get a close-up of what the holy birthplace of Lord Ram was about. In my inspired state, I persuaded a few of us diverse pilgrims to come to the deer park for an all-night meditation vigil by the Dumex Stupa. Five of us sat there in the moonlight, the Thai monk, Brother Cuthbert, Nick, Steve and myself. Resident bhikkhus felt they should stay and guard the wat while the abbot was away. We did some chanting. I think I tried to lead them through the Dhamma Chakrabhawatana Sutta. But no matter. Our gallant performance didn't last long. A couple of armed watchmen wary of looting came round. It was after eight o'clock. We had to leave the park. End game. Nick... Steve and I repaired to the roof of the Vihara to continue the vigil. At midnight, Steve retired for the evening. The tour bus would be leaving at dawn. Nick went downstairs to get some tea, and I was left with the stars. We had a nice easy ride out in a few hours' time. My energy was low, but steady. I wasn't going to waste one of the few opportunities India had offered to feed at home in meditation. The integrity of this place where the kingdom of truth had been set up and the range of nationalities who had gathered here in just these few days to pay homage to that truth had given me a burst of strength. Have I not already told you that there is separation and parting and division from all that is dear and beloved? Each of you should make the Dhamma your island and have no other refuge. That had emphatically been the Buddha's way. He gave the group of five teachings throughout that reigns, releasing their minds from holding on the underlying cause of all dukkha. At the end of the reigns, he made his way back to Rajagaha, telling the others to split up and wander for the welfare and happiness of many out of compassion for the world. Teach the law that is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. They rarely, if ever, saw him again. But by then they didn't need him to hold on to. Nick Scott. So we didn't walk from Sarnath to Savati. Instead, we got up after only one and a half hours sleep to pack and then have breakfast with the affluent tour party. And then, muddled and dozy, we rode in two luxury coaches with India rushing by outside. The bhikkhus sat in the front seats and behind them were the Thai lay people mostly middle-aged ladies wearing colourful Thai sarongs with short tops and white wraps worn as a sash over their shoulder to designate them as pilgrims. Inspired by our walking pilgrimage, they collected donations to help us on our way. One hundred dollars, two yarms, the saffron shoulder bags that every bhikkhu carries, and a full set of robes for Ajahn Suchito. They finally dropped us in the early afternoon five kilometres before Gorakhpur, where the road north met the main east-west trunk road. 
We were going west. They were going on to Kushinigar to the east, and then Lumbini, stopping one night at each, part of a 14-day tour of the holy places, with New Delhi and the Taj Mahal thrown in. After months of walking, it all seemed so hurried and out of sync to us. They'd brought us 200 kilometres, the equivalent of a week's walking, and left us dazed, standing by the road, with me clutching a wad of Indian banknotes, watching their coach disappear. Of course, I left something behind. This time it was the new robes Ajahn Suchito had just been given. Ajahn Suchito realised straight away, and was visibly upset. I apologise, but couldn't feel too bad. He had robes already, and the new set were Thai city ones that were very unlikely to fit him. For Ajahn Suchita, though, it was the receiving of them that was important. I could have left them anywhere else, but to have left them on the coach was a rejection of their gift. Luckily for me, we weren't standing there long. Minutes later, we'd hitched a ride and were bouncing along at a more sedate 40 kilometres an hour in the Tata long-distance lorry, befriended by driver and owner, who plied us with tea at each stop, and who eventually dropped us at Iodia in the gathering dusk. Iodia received us gently. This was Rama's city, where, according to the Ramayana, he had reigned as Dharma king, a blessing to his people, creating peace, harmony, and fertility on the earth. And this at the end of a long and arduous path sustained by righteousness. The story goes that he was a prince sent into exile due to his stepmother's jealousy, spending fourteen years in the forest, accompanied by his utterly loyal brother Lakshmana and his totally devoted wife Sita. She gets abducted by the demon king of Sri Lanka, Ravana, who is defying the gods. But eventually Rama tracks her down, and with the aid of an army of animals, including the heroic monkey Hanuman, kills Ravana, regains his wife, and returns to Ayodhya, where another loyal brother who had been ruling in his stead willingly hands over the throne. So it is. Gods, demons, and kings defer to the power of Dharma. Well, as we descended days from our epic truck ride, Odia itself was remarkably peaceful. It was an Indian town you could actually call quaint. It had no other business than the celebration of Rama, and at this time of year was less frequented by bathers in the river Sarayu, as it is in the sacred literature, or Gagara, according to the map. Jai Ram was on everybody's lips, but as a greeting and a blessing, rather than as a war cry. The faintly illuminated winding streets were uncongested, the crumbling old houses were intermingled with temples and lodgings, and the wadge of chai shops and stores selling religious posters and strings of mala beads 
was occasionally interleaved by stores selling copies of some of the many versions and editions of the Ramayana. It was all too late to do a lot of searching for lodgings, so he put up in a small guest house near the waterfront. The diary entry for the next day, February 15th, has just a few lines about feeling cold in the wind from the guts, violent bouts of sickness and wandering round winding alleys. I remember the town as having a slow, organic vitality. The back streets were like the connecting tissue of some gigantic sacred plant. Temples blossomed everywhere, some still crisply formed and coloured, some more like fungal growths on top of the brick stumps of other temples, some overblown and gradually disintegrating, with saplings growing out of the brickwork. Then there was a sadhu's rest house, somewhere we had unsuccessfully attempted to lodge in. By the evening, I brightened up enough to engage one of the priests in a temple beside the river in religious dialogue. I tried to get him to explain the meaning of the variety of little statues on the altar, images of Rama, of Hanuman, of Krishna, of Durga, of Lakshmi. In India, the gods seem to represent why and how things manifest, or were they considered real? Maybe the priest could explain. He gazed at us benignly through his spectacles and brought out two items that looked like tufty pipe cleaners. He bestowed them on us with a smile. Jai Ram, holy for cleaning nostril. Purity means everything in India. But at times it was more like a purgation. As with the Odia crisis, it was hardly about the legendary god-king at all. It was about Indian politics. In 1984, a fundamentalist Hindu organisation, Vishwa Hindu Parishad, launched a campaign here to regain a site occupied by a mosque that they claimed to be the site of Rama's birth. The Buddhists were keeping quiet about their ancient stupa on the site. This resulted in predictable conflict. 2,500 people died in one riot in Bhagalpur, in Bihar alone. Meanwhile, a minority political party, Bharatiya Janata Party, BJP, sided with the fundamentalists and through that gained enough seats in the general election to be a key player in the ruling coalition that was nominally led by the Janata Dal Party. The coalition began to fracture when the Prime Minister, V.P. Singh, forbade the demolition of the mosque, even as the leader of BJP led a religious pilgrimage throughout India to mobilise Hindu support. The pilgrimage itself left such a wake of communal violence that the Janata Dal governor of Uttar Pradesh closed the border with Bihar to prevent it from reaching Ayodhya. And V.P. Singh had Advani, leader of the BJP, arrested. This resulted in BJP withdrawing support from the government and calling a national strike. Riots ensued and the government collapsed. A new coalition took over, backed by the Congress party, but meanwhile, a couple of days before Nick and I landed in Delhi, thousands of Karasivaks, holy workers, gathered in Ayodhya, broke through the security lines and attacked the mosque, which resulted in riots, unrest and curfews throughout India. 
things were still simmering. A peaceful protest in December had resulted in more violence, and the issue was obviously still both completely unresolved and a powerful vehicle for political gain. Through it, BJP's representation in India's parliament had grown from two to 119 in two years. India certainly needed a Dharma king now. But the irony was that the Indian monarchs who had best complied with the Vedic standards of such a king were Ashoka the Buddhist and Akbar the Mughal, who started his reign as a Muslim but steadily moved towards a more universalist position. Since then Gandhi had tried, but he had been assassinated by a Hindu fundamentalist. Ram was the word on his dying breath, but Rama had long since left India to another monarch, a queen who was establishing her dharma everywhere. Jai Ram, people kept saying, but Jai Kali was closer to the truth. Those nose cleaners were the end of Ayodhya for me. I was just about cleaned out, and not just physically. Though I felt weak and sick, it was time to move on. I remember another long bridge in a shining river, and after that, standing around at some road junction, trying to figure out whether to hitchhike, walk, or catch a bus. If only I could think straight. I just knew we had to get to Savati, the favourite resort of the Blessed One. Things would be better there. And what is the middle way? It is the noble eightfold path, that is to say, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Nick Scott Iodia was all the things that Varanasi hadn't been. Where Varanasi had promised so much, only to disappoint, we had expected the worst of Iodia and found it magical. There was no sign of the troubles we'd heard so much about. We had a chat with an army lieutenant we met as we walked about the town, who assured us there was no problem. It is these Karsavak fellows, and they've gone now. Somehow, the place had managed to remain still, despite the storm that had raged round it. And just to emphasise how much the whole thing had been an excuse for politicians to whip up support, there was the conversation we had with the Hindu priest in the largest temple we visited. He dismissed the whole controversy. The temple we were now in was the true site of the birth of Rama, not the site of the mosque. We later found out that there was yet another temple on the other side of Iodia that also claimed to be the site of Rama's birth. My only regret was that we never got to stay in the Sadhu's Damsala. The place was an Indian version of a Dickensian doss house, full of amazing characters, 
with long matted hair, their tridents resting against the walls. Some were in orange robes, while others were nearly naked or naked and covered in white dust. But they all had their foreheads smeared with the three wide vertical lines of paste, two outer ones of white, the inner red, that designated them as followers of Ram. The next day we were back on the road, riding in a local lorry a few miles along the trunk road to a turning for the road north to Gonda. Where we were actually going, though, was uncertain. The plan originally had been to go to Savati for our luck now. Ajahn Suchito wanted to call in on Sri Punjaji, teacher of many Westerners in India, who had flocked to his very ordinary house in the suburbs. But on leaving Iodia, Ajahn Suchito couldn't find the piece of paper with the address given by Thomas, and decided the visit wasn't meant to be. If we weren't bound for Iodia, then I wanted to return to walking. Rushing across the plains in lorries and coaches felt wrong to me. From here north it was less populated and would make fine walking country. There was even a large wetland nature reserve between us and Savati. We stood waiting for a lift undecided on how far to take it and how far to walk. I suspected Ajahn Suchito just wanted to get on to Savati. He appeared to me to be in a sullen mood. When not animated, his face can look so harsh. As we stood there in silence waiting, there was hardly any traffic. It suddenly dawned on me that the reason he was so listless and disinterested, the reason for things like losing the address, could be that he was ill. I asked him, and he nodded. Yes, he had dysentery again, and yes, it was bad this time, and he felt very weak. And with a slight shake of the head, no, he was probably not up to walking. It could be so hard to spot my companion's difficulties, as he made so little of them. Part of his character expected life to be difficult, even welcomed it. So I opened up to this other person and his needs, and we took a local bus to the next town, and from there hitched a ride to Gonda to buy him some medicine. The helpful man in the pharmacy sold us flea-seed husk for Ajahn Suchito's diarrhoea, and gave us the time of the next train to Balrampur, the railway station nearest to Savati. The branch line from Gonda to Balrampur swings up to Nepal and over in a sweeping curve of narrow-gauge track that comes down again to Gorakhpur. It was just like the one we'd walked beside when we first came south from Nepal, and like that one, steam engines still pulled the trains. It was on an Indian branch line, just like this, that I first got to ride on the running plate of a steam locomotive. I was twenty then, and can still remember the thrill, and the sight of the driver stopping in the middle of nowhere for an old lady with an earthenware pot. The stoker shoveled some coal out, she handed up the pot in exchange, and we spent the rest of the ride drinking the contents some pretty good rice wine. This time we were riding on the 46 up, which left at 11.20am. Of course I had to ride on the locomotive again, 
I tried to get Ajahn Suchito, who seemed to have perked up a bit, to join me, but he wasn't interested. He said he couldn't see why. So I went up alone at one of the stops and was invited on board. The locomotive started slowly, the pistons turning the drive wheels over with a distinct clunk. Then the rhythm gradually built until eventually we were rushing along the fiery steel monster shuddering and pounding. The driver stood on one side, leaning out to see the line ahead, the scenery rushing by him. His khaki uniform and the white hanky tied on his head was streaked with black. His face was pockmarked from the burns of years of flying cinders, and there were hard calluses on his hands from handling hot iron without gloves. He had just four controls, a bar that engaged the drive rods, another that put the engine into reverse, a brass brake lever, and a wire that he pulled to let steam into the whistle. Shouting above the racket, he told me that the engine had been built in Canada over 40 years ago. Like so much in India, it had been patched and kept going ever since. A couple of old bicycle chains held the main control bar in place, and there were rusted holes in the metal plate of the cab so that I could see down to the rails rushing by underneath. There were various battered valves and levers controlling the water pressure that the stoker adjusted by hitting them with a hammer. I stood on the opposite side from the driver, leaning out to watch the snorting beast eating up the line ahead. I loved it. We thundered through the countryside, peasants in the fields turning to stare blankly as we passed, and the odd cow lumbering off the line ahead in response to a blast from the whistle. Then we slowed as we came to the next small town, passing people squatting by the line at their morning ablutions, then the waiting passengers on the platform, and finally stopping, the carriages shuddering to a halt behind us. There was a lot of commotion back there, passengers getting on and off, vendors calling their wares, while we were alone beside the water tower with its hanging hose. After a brief wait and the wave of a green flag, we started again, initially the wheels turning so slowly, but soon we were pounding along again. Even trains are included in the Indian sense of caste and duty. In England, when they still used steam, a man started his career as a boy helping in the engine shed, and then, as he passed tests, he became first a fireman, and then a driver. In India, what you do on the railways depends on your caste. There is even a unique railway caste, the Anglo-Indians who drive the mainline expresses. Of course, it is only the lower caste doing the menial work. Standing where I was, I was out of the way of the stoker flinging coal into the furnace. He would open it every few minutes. A blast of red heat would hit us as he threw half a dozen shovel loads in. Then he would slam it shut. There was also a little assistant stoker, probably of even a lower caste, who spent most of his time back in the tender preparing the coal, breaking it up and throwing it to the front for the stoker to fling into the firebox. Both of them were stripped down, dusted with coal and gleaming with sweat. I once rode on the footplate of the Bombay Mail on the main line from New Delhi. That took so much coal that the firebox was constantly open and two stokers took turns throwing the coal in. 
We rode through the night, the train belching red ashes out into the blackness, and me sharing the red glow of a chillum of ganja with the stokers. These days, all the main lines have diesels instead, and although there were still steam trains on the branch lines, even their days were numbered. A steam train takes so much more work than a diesel. It takes four hours from lighting a pile of sticks in the firebox to bring it up to steam. It has to be tended by a gang of men who grease and oil, bang and curse, until it's ready to leave. Then, in harness, it takes two minutes to reach 40 miles an hour, the fastest they can go, while a diesel can do that in half a minute. That difference means a lot on a branch line where they stop every 10 minutes. And of course, diesels are much less work to drive. There is no coal to shovel and no cinders or hot metal to be burnt by. A year after we got back from India, Indian Railways started to replace its remaining steam trains. By 1995, they were scrapping 100 a week. Even with the thousands that there once were, soon there were to be none left. The vast monolith of the Indian Railways, the largest employer in the world with 60,000 kilometres of track carrying 18 million people a day, had finally joined the rest of the railway world in saying goodbye to steam. So I'm really glad I took that opportunity to ride one last time on an Indian steam engine. I did have another go at getting Ajahn Suchito to try. After I returned to her carriage, I nearly managed at one stop when the train was held up for ten minutes. But when he finally got out to take a walk to look at the engine, just to please me, the whistle went, and he had to return. At Balrampore we descended and left the steam monster to chug away up the line, and with it ended that delightful interlude. Once out of the station, I returned to the pilgrimage. There was a big gold-painted Buddha, a two-kilometre walk to the town, and as we trudged along, my mind started to fill up again with the kind of petty thoughts I'd so often have. I even started irrationally to resent missing the wetland nature reserve, despite enjoying the train ride so much. Ajahn Suchito, I suspect, was fed up just because he was so run down from dysentery. And of course, maybe that's why he was so disinterested in the steam engine. He wouldn't tell me that, though. He would just go hard-faced and silent, and then I'd take it as disdain. It was so easy to retreat back into our personal worlds when things got difficult on the pilgrimage. From the town we hitched a ride to Savaty on a local lorry with blasting music and two steel bull's horns on its prow. On our descent we met the Thai tour party just returning to their coach. They'd visited Kushinagar, Lumbini and now Savaty since we'd parted and were staying in the Thai Wat. Steve suggested we came by to see them that evening. When we did, we found another Wat Thai, seemingly much like the one we'd just left in Sarnath. Steve wasn't around, though, so we sat there with Ajahn Suchito talking to a few of the Thai ladies. We drank tea and soft drinks again and received the results of another collection, 
this time a cheque for 100 US dollars, which regretfully I couldn't cash in India. Sitting there, I could see how it must feel on one of these organised pilgrimages. Now back in the familiarity of the what, it was as if we had been nowhere. The strange rushing journey through India, the weird sadhus at Ayodhya, and the fire-belching monster of a steam engine seemed just an aberration from reality. The Wat had the usual large white concrete accommodation blocks, and there were Thai Nagas guarding the gateway. But even on that short visit, and feeling groggy from the journey, we sensed something wasn't right. The gates had been locked, and it had taken some doing to get the Indian Chokidar to just let us in. The Thai ladies had to remonstrate with him. The resident Sangha ignored us. The abbot continued to talk to some of the Thai ladies, and then retired. And we got the distinct impression we weren't wanted. Fortunately, we had arranged by then, on Sister Tanisra's advice, to stay elsewhere. Venerable Sasanarasmi had also warned us. He told us that the resident monk, a Cambodian trained in Thailand, was interested only in money. While he was all over Thai tour parties who made generous donations, he would be uninterested in the likes of us. Sure enough, when we called by to pay our respects two days later, a duty that Ajahn Suchito saw as important whatever might be said of the abbot, the abbot didn't know his duty, and we weren't even allowed in. <laughs> 